Let me say that you may hear some noise during the course of this podcast. If you remember, my house has been destroyed by storms and we are in the final days of its reconstruction and you were actually hearing the people working upstairs above me. Sorry, I just had to keep going even though they're here. So if you hear some clomping around, it's the people upstairs who are literally putting the walls back on our living room. Well, Ulysses, he was enough for any of us for three episodes of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and you know the podcast. We are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We have come through the unbelievably dramatic episode of Ulysses, and we are now entering Canto 27 of Inferno. We are way down in the bottom pits of fraud. We are in the eighth of the evil pouches of the Malabolcha that make up the giant circle of fraud, the eighth circle of Inferno. If you're just joining us now, <laughs> God save your mortal soul, but you might want to go back and at least get to the front of the eighth circle of fraud, if not all the way back to the beginning of this podcast. We've been at this for a while. We are slow walking, magnificently slow, as I saw in one review of this podcast. Through Dante's Inferno, we're up to Canto 27. We're going to stick in this evil pouch, the eighth one that holds Ulysses, and find a second figure in this pouch. This episode of the podcast will be lines 1 through 30 of Canto 27 of Inferno. This is my English language translation. It does not no service to the poetry of Dante, but merely tries to translate the words accurately. I would advise you as always to get a facing page translation so that you can look at the Florentine on the other side of an English translation and you can see that mine does no service at all to the poetry that is Dante's, but tries in fact to get it into English so that the sense is right. You can find this translation on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can drop a comment and start a conversation about this episode in which we continue in the eighth of the Malabolcha. At this point, the flames straightened up and turned quiet, intent on speaking no more. It then moved away from us with the go-ahead from my sweet poet, Justice, another one who came up right behind made our sight fasten onto its tip because of the garbled noise that could be heard from it. As the Sicilian bull, whose first bellows came from the cries of the guy who made it, and it served him right, the one whose file had molded its form, as it used to bellow with the voice of the tormented so that, although it was made of brass, it seemed impaled in pain, so having no escape or outlet from its origin in the fire, the agonizing words were converted into their own language. But once those sounds had made it up to the flame's tip, giving it the same flutterings that had come from the tongue that had been their passage, we heard it say, Hey, you, to whom I direct my voice and who just now spoke Lombard, when you said be on your way now, I'm not holding you anymore. Although I may have gotten here a bit late, may it not irritate you to stop and talk to me? You see that I'm not irritated and I'm the one burning up. If only just now 
Into this blind world you fell from up in the sweet land of Italy, from the place where I packed up all my guilt. Tell me if Romagna has peace or war. You see, I came from the mountains between Urbino and the ridge from which the Tiber springs. We're going to stop the speaker right there at the end of his first speech, his request to find out the news from Romagna. This passage is complicated. You could probably tell that the simile in it about the Sicilian bull is very twisty. It's hard to even figure out what is being compared to what. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's just start at the top of the passage. It starts... At this point, the flame straightened up. That is Ulysses, the flame. And this is interesting because the flame is just that one horn that is Ulysses straightened up. Diomedes? I don't know. He's either forgotten or what we're to focus on is the horn of the flame that is Ulysses. Anyway, at this point, the flame straightened up and turned quiet, intent on speaking no more. Then it moved away from us with the go-ahead from my sweet poet. Here are our two clues about Ulysses. Remember, I told you that this canto starts rather um, hurdy-gurdy, rather jerky after that glorious speech from Ulysses, but it does land two clues. One is straightened up. Ulysses is upright. He is unbowed in hell, and he reminds us of other figures. He reminds us of Jason with the seducers. Go back to canto 18, lines 83 through 84, and you'll see that Virgil compliments Jason amongst the seducers for being so upright as if he doesn't care as he walks along being whipped. He doesn't care about the pains of hell because he is, after all, Jason. Or go back to Farinata in Canto 10, line 36. He seems to hold the pains of hell in complete disdain. Ulysses is one of these figures who, like Jason and Farinata, seem above the pains of hell. That's an intriguing problem. It has bedeviled commentators, as you can imagine, for 700 years. How can anyone be above the pains of hell? And yet there do seem to be these three figures so far who somehow transcend the pain that is going on around them. Of course they don't, but their spines are so, well, (laughs) The word we use in my house is Protestant. Their spines are so Protestant that they can somehow hold the uh, pains of hell in disdain. But there's a second clue here, and that is sweet poet. It then moved away from us with the go-ahead from my dolce poeta in the medieval Florentine. Virgil's version of epic, the Aeneid, is different from Ulysses' version of epic. Ulysses' version of epic, we might be able to say here in the classical world, is narcissistic, it's self-serving, it gets a lot of people killed, as opposed to Virgil's notion of epic... (laughs) which still gets a lot of people killed. But you know, they're not the good people. So good grief. This is so gross. But they're not the good people. They're just those people who inhabit the Italian peninsula before the Trojans show up with Aeneas. So, you know, uh, he wins in the end. And the two kinds of poetry may be being contrasted in the words, my sweet poet. Let's just say that I'm not sliding over the problems in the Aeneid of the genocide of the people who live on the Italian peninsula. 
Coppola, but rather saying for Dante, there may be a difference in the classical setting between the two figures, Ulysses and Virgil. That is, Virgil is a dolce poeta. The flame straightens up. It seems to move away with the go-ahead from My Sweet Poet. And in this very passage, we'll hear what Virgil said. You'll notice that what Virgil says is dropped right here. And later, the figure who shows up quotes Virgil. So Virgil says something. The flame moves on. And right behind it comes another one. The passage says, just as another one who came up right behind made our sight fasten onto its tip because of the garbled noise that could be heard from it, coming from it. So here comes this second figure. And rather than being upright, and quiet rather than holding the pains of hell in disdain this one's muttering and as it mutters because it's in a tongue of fire it garbles it makes garbled noises it, it sisses it, it what does it do it makes confused weird sounds it seems perhaps that it's talking to itself it's complaining perhaps it, the garbled noise is in direct contrast to the glorious poetry of Ulysses speech and if you think about it we're about to be told how this speech happens from a flame. If you think about it, Ulysses must be a figure of great control if he can control the flame enough to get that poetry out of its tip. Let's talk about this figure who shows up on the backside. He is clearly, and I think you can see it here, clearly a contrasted form to Ulysses. He is, and we'll talk much more about this in future episodes, a comic form as opposed to Ulysses who is a tragic form, or at least a truncated epic form. This figure is much more comic, and by comic, I'm going to mean several things. I'm going to mean, A, he's definitely going to speak in the medieval Florentine. <laughs> Ulysses does too, but we have to kind of blip over that as the willing suspension of disbelief. But this one's going to speak much more clearly in the medieval Florentine, as we'll see. And what happens to this one is also comic in the modern sense of the word. He's going to tell a story in which something Thing actually in medieval context is very funny happens at the end of his story. This figure is Guido da Montefeltro. I've told you that in advance, even though he's not identified in this passage. Some critics and commentators claim that even by the end of this passage, because of the references to Romagna, it would be clear who this is. I don't think that's actually true. Most people are looking ahead to what this figure says about himself, in which then it does become clear that this is Guido de Montefeltro. He's a contrast, as I said, to Ulysses. He's a Ghibelline warlord. We'll talk more about this in the next episode of the podcast. But let's also have one piece of information that is interesting about this. His son, Buonconte de Montefeltro, will show up in Purgatorio. This is one of the few times in which we have actually paired figures in comedy. And here we have the father who is showing up in this flame in the eighth of the Malabolgia. And when we get to Purgatorio, fairly early on in Purgatorio, his son, Buonconte, will show up and tell an incredibly crazy story about his death. We're going to hear the story here of Guido's death, 
and then we will actually hear the story of his son's death in Purgatorio. Remember I told you about Ulysses that the stories of actual deaths are rare in comedy. In fact, we're finally coming up to them, and now we're going to have a, a run of them. We're going to see several people meet their own death and tell the story of their dying in comedy. And it's just so interesting that this guy shows up in this pit after Ulysses while his son shows up later amongst the becoming redeemed. Well, they are redeemed, but they're purgating their sins. The becoming redeemed in Purgatorio. Now, passing on to that tough metaphor about the Sicilian bull. The passage says, as the Sicilian bull, whose first bellows came from the cries of the guy who made it, and it served him right, the one whose file had molded its form, as it used to bellow with the voice of the tormented, so that although it was made of brass, it seemed impaled in pain, so having no escape or outlet from its origins in the fire, the agonizing words were converted into their own language. The reference is to a torture device. It was commissioned by Phalaris, who was a Sicilian tyrant. Well, to be more specific, an Agrigento tyrant. Well, to be even more specific, a Syracuse tyrant. Let's, for the sake of ease, let's just say a Sicilian tyrant. Uh, Dante is getting this information probably from Ovid's Arts of Love from the first volume, lines 653 through 656. It's the golden age of ancient Greece. Phalaris is ruling down in Sicily. He calls an Athenian craftsman, Perilous, down to Sicily. And he asks this craftsman to create a brass bull. The point of this is he is going to put his enemies or his dissidents inside this thing, then light a fire under it and burn them alive inside a brass bull. As they're inside of it, they scream in terror, of course, as one would. And supposedly, as they screamed, out of its mouth came those sounds of screams as if the bull was bellowing. This is really a gross form of torture. We'll talk about this in a minute, why this is here, but let's just get the historical reference here and let's get the other reference that is historically sitting behind this. There is probably a ringing resonance here between this Sicilian bull with somebody burning up inside of it, a ringing resonance here with the Trojan horse, which also had people inside of it. We are probably seeing an infernal and weird, upside-down, gross example of the Trojan horse that is this instrument of unbelievable torture, the brass bull that the uh, tyrant would set on fire in order to silence, ultimately, but first make bellow his enemies or dissidents. Now let's talk about what this actually could possibly mean. Let me read you that 
simile one more time. As the Sicilian bull, whose first bellows came from the cries of the guy who made it, and it served him right, the one whose file had molded its form, as it used to bellow with the voice of the tormented so that, although it was made of brass, it seemed impaled in pain, so having no escape or outlet from its origins in the fire, the agonizing words were converted into their own language. This is probably a signal about the infernal speech. That is, we should not forget that even though Ulysses was so noble, he is, after all, on fire. Although his speech may have seemed epically noble, we shouldn't forget that he's burning up. It may sound good, but what it is is the bellows of a tormented soul inside of a torture device, the flame itself. That's probably the first meaning here, but I do think there's a second problem here, and it comes because of certain words in the passage. It says, as the Sicilian bull, whose first bellows came from the cries of the guy who made it, and it served him right, the one whose file had molded its form. This is the bit that makes me pause. The claim is being made that Perilous, the craftsman who first made the bull, is the one whose file molded its form. He's an artist. So the first person burned alive inside of this uh, kind of artistically created something so beautifully done that it takes a file to make the brass smooth as possible. The first person who dies in such craftsmanship is the artist. And I always stop and wonder if this bit about the Sicilian bull is some kind of fear-based warning about the creation of poetry, a warning from Dante to Dante about the problems of getting locked inside your own poetry, because it is so about the craftsman, and it is so about the craftsman who makes this beautiful thing and then burns alive inside of it, and it served him right. Is this a comment about Dante, about turning this kind of world upside down with this gorgeous speech from Ulysses? It says, having no escape or outlet from its origins in the fire. So the guy's inside the bull, right? And he's burning up because there's a fire underneath this brass bull and it's getting incredibly hot. The agonizing words were converted and that's it right there into their own language. This is what also leads me to believe that this may be some weird backwards, fear-based warning about the creation of poetry because of the emphasis on language. I'm going to give you this simile without all the interpolated clauses. As the Sicilian bull used to bellow with the voice of the tormented, so the agonizing words were converted into their own language. Since the simile is so focused on the creation of language, I just can't help but see this as some kind of warning about poetic creation. After all, at the end of the sequence in Ovid, there is the moral to the story, and that is, this is what Ovid says, there is no law more just than that the craftsman of death should die by his own handiwork. 
Is Dante talking about Ulysses, the craftsman of death, is dying by his own handiwork? Or is Dante here remembering that passage from Ovid and thinking of himself? By creating such incredibly gorgeous poetry, I run the risk of my own damnation. I run the risk of becoming a false counselor But once those sounds had made it up to the flame's tip, giving it the same flutterings that had come from the tongue that had been its passage, we heard it say, and then I'm going to stop right here. Now we know how the flames speak. This is a fabulous example of Dante's imaginative willingness to explain the gaps in his own poetry. You might have thought all along, maybe you didn't, but you could have. Wait, how does a flame talk? Doesn't it just sputter and sizzle? Apparently, the sound from the guy inside gets up to the tip and then sizzles out, and the fluttering of the guy's tongue inside the flame causes the same kind of fluttering at the top of the flame, which makes the speech. This, to me, is a prime example of Dante filling in the problems. Remember, we talked about this a lot early in this podcast, that Dante won't let things alone, that ultimately he'll recognize the problems and he will try to make up for it. This is a perfect example of that. He has now given us a rationale for how the flames speak. This is the mark for me of a great writer. A great writer will not simply slip over the gaps and say, oh, well, (laughs) who's going to notice that? A great writer will try to fill in the gaps. Bruce and I watch a lot of crime, of long stream seven and eight episode crime dramas, particularly from Scandinavia. And we often remark about how, you know, something will happen and it's not explained or it's not picked up or it's it just seems to come out of the blue. And we'll always say, oh, the writers just lost interest because they didn't explain this motivation or they didn't explain this action inside the plot. Or why, if somebody was fired from a corporation five years ago, why is his login still in the computer so they can fi- track his whereabouts inside the corporation five years later? Why isn't his whole profile deleted from the corporate server? Dante doesn't do that. He doesn't just lose interest in the details of the plot. Rather, he comes back to it and tries to make it up. Okay, so let's hear what Guido has to say. He says, hey, you. And he does seem to call out to them, to whom I direct my voice and who just now uh, just now spoke Lombard when you said, be on your way now. I'm holding you no more. Let's stop right there. So Virgil is indeed speaking in the Lombard dialect. It could be that we already knew this back amongst the baritors when the baritor who is about to trick the demons jumps into the pitch when he is actually going to says he's going to call people out of the pitch, but then he jumps into it and gets away from the demons. He says, I could get people out of it, whether Tuscan or Lombard. That may be the first moment in which we're kind of clued in that Virgil may be speaking another dialect, but here it comes out as the truth, and now we have it straight on. Virgil is speaking in the Lombard dialect. Guido goes ahead and quotes Virgil, be on your way now, and he uses word istra 
instead of Isa, Istra, which is in the Lombard dialect. Be on your way now. I'm not holding you anymore. This has, of course, created dozens of problems for commentators over the years. Does Virgil address Ulysses in Greek <laughs> and in Homeric Greek at that, but then dismiss him in Lombard? That is what many commentators say. Virgil uses the high classical language of even Homeric Greek in order to first talk to Ulysses. But now that Ulysses is done, Virgil has such contempt for him that he dismisses him in the Lombard dialect. I don't really hold that idea, but it is very common in the commentary. Or has Virgil always been speaking in Lombard and somehow Ulysses speaks both Homeric Greek or or some kind of Greek, and he also speaks Lombard. Unclear. Since most of what Dante knows is from Latin sources like Ovid, perhaps Dante thinks that Ulysses would speak Latin as well as Greek, but that's still not Lombard. That's another answer. And then here's my answer, and it's been my answer all along. I swear there is a veiled Pentecostal reference behind all this, an infernal inversion of Pentecostal cost because of the tongues of fire, because of the wind, because of this, because of that. You've heard me say this a million times. And I think this is another veiled, unbelievably weird reference to an infernal Pentecost. Virgil and Ulysses can speak the same language. At Pentecost, when the flames of fire, the tongues of fire descend upon the disciples, well, now they're the apostles, the apostles' heads, when they descend on them, what happens is that each one doesn't speak a language. So, you know, John doesn't speak Latin, and Peter doesn't speak Aramaic, and James doesn't speak Arabic. What apparently happens is that they preach, and everybody in the crowd hears the words as if it's in their own language. It's not that I change my language. It's that somehow this tongue of fire allows my language to come into your ear as if it were in your language. And I just can't help but think there's this weird Pentecostal inversion going on throughout this passage. But you should just know that throughout this bit, commentators over 700 years are incredibly concerned about Virgil speaking Lombard, about what language Ulysses speaks, about all of those problems. And even my Pentecostal answer is not a complete and full answer. I think no one has sufficiently answered this problem. And this, even though we just had an example of Dante solving one of the gaps in his own narrative, this may be a gap in Dante's narrative that he doesn't solve. Let's look at what Guido actually says. Hey you, to whom I direct my voice and who just now spoke Lombard when you said, be on your way now, I'm holding you no more. Although I may have gotten here a bit late, may it not irritate you to stop and talk to me. You see that I'm not irritated. I'm the one burning up. If only just now into this blind world you fell up from the sweet land of Italy, from the place where I packed up all my guilt, tell me if Romagna has peace or war. You see, I came from the mountains between Urbino and the ridge from which the Tiber springs. Let's talk a little bit about the problems of language in this speech. First of all, Guido says, I just now heard you speak in Lombard, and he uses a word mo, which is very typical medieval Florentine for now. I heard you mo speak Lombard now, now speak Lombard. And then later he says, if only 
mo into this blind world you fell. Uh, I translated it as just now, but if only now you fell into this blind world, mo, mo. He uses it twice in the passage, but when he quotes Virgil, he uses this Lombard word, istra. There's two things that are going on here that I think are interesting. One is Guido tweaking Virgil. Is his first little bits out of his mouth a way to say, hey, I I speak Florentine, buddy. You speak some hick dialect Lombard. I'm going to repeat now twice just to be a jerk and make sure you understand that I speak the really great language and you speak some, you know, Hicksville dialect (laughs) of Italian. Or is it, and this is probably also the case, is it that he, there is a huge emphasis here on the present moment. Just now spoke Lombard. Just now fell into the blind world. Be on your way now, Ulysses. That, that we're being signaled repeatedly that we're moving out of the classical world and into the modern world, into this world in which now happens. And we are. Guido de Montefeltro is a figure right out of Dante's own time. So we are being signaled signaled that this is now. And there's a second language problem. Guido says, although my I may have gotten here a bit late, tardo. The word he uses there, tardo, is exactly the word that Ulysses uses to describe his men. Remember when I said, uh, Ulysses says to his men, we're old and slow. The word he uses there that I translated there slow is Tardy. That's in Canto 26, line 106. Tardy. And this is the first time that there is a link between Guido and Ulysses, and there will be many links between Guido and Ulysses over the course of Canto 27. And the first one is a mimicking of language, tardo, tardi. It may seem small to you, and it is, in fact, a very, very small thread, but there are going to become so many small threads that ultimately we can build a fairly sturdy rope between Ulysses and Guido. He wants to know about Romagna. He says, if only just now you fell into this blind world from up in the sweet land of Italy, from the place where I packed up all my guilt. Tell me about, tell me if Romagna has peace or war. You see, I came from the mountains between Urbino and the ridge from which the Tiber springs. Ah, fascinating. And here's why it's fascinating. Because if you remember all the way back up to the start of Canto 26, right before we met Ulysses, Canto 26 starts with a condemnation of Florence. Then we get Ulysses and we blow out across the globe. And now we come back to Romagna. What happens here is we have the provincial, the global, the provincial. The global journey of Ulysses is surrounded by the provincial concerns of Florence and Romagna. And I don't mean provincial as a negative necessarily. I just mean localized. This global journey is held in place by the by the provincial, by the local, by the familiar, by the um, the part of the world that Dante knows. Romagna, uh, Florence, etc. It, it's it's wrapped around this big journey. 
And that is really important to see for two reasons. One, you probably know that in any writing class, people will say, instructors will say, write what you know, meaning write about the things you don't, you have experienced, write about the things that you would have experience with. If you are from, oh, let's say, if you're like me and you started out from Texas and now you live in rural New England, don't set your novel in Tibet unless you unless you know Tibet really is so absurd, unless you know Tibet really well, right? What you know. And Dante does write what he knows. He begins with Florence and he always returns to the very locale he's from in order to continue to write what he knows. That is the part of the world he knows. But you'll notice that Dante's imagination is more capacious than that and it blows out into the global with Ulysses. This is a crucial problem. And let me just say, and I'm going to step back from Dante for a minute and just say, this is the logic fault that has plagued Western thought for <laughs> ever, for a very long time. That is that the local or the provincial somehow mirrors the universal. If you just think about that, you will realize that that is the axis on which social media turns. So you have one idiot say some horrific thing. Everybody blows it out into insanity and says, this is what all Democrats think, or this is what all Republicans think, or this is what all men think. It is taking a local example and generalizing it to the universal. It is the way we think in Western thought, and it is one of the giant deficits of Western thought. That is, my neighbor is a jerk, so the world is coming. So the world is coming to an end. My neighbor just leaves their old beat up car in their driveway. Like, this is what's wrong with America. We don't take care of things anymore. That's really what's wrong with America is because your neighbor leaves his junky car up in his driveway. That doesn't seem right to me. In fact, if you think about this, and Dante is a prime example of this, if you think about this, this is a root of Western cognitive thought. That is that the provincial somehow, the specific, the local, what we know, what's near me, somehow can contain border bookend and explain the universal. In fact, that happens in this passage. I'm not kicking Dante too hard because I do this too. I absolutely jump out to a global perspective and then jump back to my very, very localized, narrow point of view. But we should see that happening in this whole entire sequence in the eighth canto, not because Dante is making a mistake, but because it illustrates a, an essential problem in Western thought. We bookend the global or the universal with the provincial in order to somehow figure out the global. And doing this, of course, is going to put Ulysses' speech, his unbelievably epic, tragic, and gorgeous speech, into the bookends of the failure of the Italian peninsula. But to get there, 
you have to subscribe to this podcast and rate it, could you please drop a rating for this podcast if you're enjoying it? I mean, whatever country you're enjoying it on, if you're on Apple Podcasts or if you're in Audible, you can drop ratings and comments about this podcast. I would really appreciate it. It really helps. I am unsupported. I am doing this for my own passion, and it really helps me subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss what comes next. And I almost promise that the next episode of this podcast won't involve any noises of construction in my house, but I can't really promise that. Seems a never-ending sequence of events. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.